and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Peter Baker and Susan Glasser to the program today. Susan Glasser is currently a writer for The New Yorker, where she pens the column Letter from Trump's Washington. She's previously been the editor for Politico, editor-in-chief for Foreign Policy magazine, and was national news editor for The Washington Post. She has written the book Covering Politics in a Post-Truth America. Peter Baker is currently the chief White House correspondent for The New York Times and worked for The Washington Post for 20 years. He's published several books, among them The Breach, Inside the Impeachment and Trial of William Jefferson Clinton, and Obama, The Call of History. Glasser and Baker are married and served as co-Moscow bureau chiefs for The Washington Post and together wrote the book Kremlin Rising, Vladimir Putin's Russia and the End of Revolution. Recently, Doubleday has published their second co-authored book, The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker III, which we will be discussing today. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a, a pleasure and an honor to have you all on the show. Oh, we're delighted. We're delighted. Thank you. I know we're all of about the same age, but for our younger listeners, could you give just the broadest of strokes on James Baker's career in the federal government? Well, James Baker was for a time, from the end of Watergate to the end of the Cold War, really one of the most central figures in Washington. He had a series of very powerful jobs. He was the campaign chairman, first for Gerald Ford and later for in four other Republican presidential campaigns. He served as Ronald Reagan's chief of staff in the White House and later as treasury secretary. And then George H.W. Bush's secretary of state. And finally, for a brief period, his chief of staff as well. This is the point in where a movie will always then flash back to the beginnings of our character. <laughs> And uh, let's learn a little bit about the, the lineage of Baker and who are the judge, the captain, and the warden. <laughs> feels like there should be Tennille in there or something. <laughs> no, you know what? That's a, a great question because Jim Baker was the son, grandson, and great-grandson of Texas lawyers who were really more than lawyers. They were really essentially founders of the city and many of its leading institutions. So the warden was Baker's not super flattering nickname for his father, a very strict disciplinarian. And, you know, listen, our teenage selves probably all have nicknames for, for our parents. But I do think that it, you know, it spoke to the conditions in which Baker grew up, which were both of great privilege, but also of great obligation and responsibility, a, a sort of constrained world at the very top, if you will. That was his dad. Now, the captain was really the dominant figure in the family. He was... Jim Baker's grandfather. He was a sort of turn of the century major figure in Houston. He was the founder of many of the institutions that have shaped the city today, including Rice University, perhaps most notably. You know, a lawyer of some repute, he won a sensational, what was called the trial of the century, involving the apparent murder of one of his biggest clients, William Marsh Rice, whose legacy. Captain Baker saved in this trial and used to create what became Rice University. But he also founded like every country club and, you know, museums and banks, sat on the board of railroads. He was, he was really a very dominant figure in the creation, both of this family and of the city of Houston itself. And then there was the judge. He was a judge briefly in the Confederacy, actually, during the Civil War which led to the family motto that you should stay out of politics. It was not a good experience, clearly. He was an elected judge. But Judge Baker was an immigrant to Texas from Huntsville, Alabama, to Huntsville, Texas, and was friends with Sam Houston and eventually settled in Houston, the new city of Houston, and became one of its leading lawyers. 
the captain, he was really one of those archetypical paterfamilias. He's the one that said, work hard, study, and keep out of politics. Yes, his father's bad experience uh, clearly must have colored that. And actually, Captain Baker, as you said, he was just this very grand figure. He bought a big mansion called the Oaks in Houston. And every Sunday, of course, all of the children and grandchildren were expected to show up there and, you know, sort of pay homage to the old guy. When he died, the funeral went around the block, which must have made a big impression on a young James A. Baker III, who, interestingly enough, was actually the fourth. We never got a very good explanation from the family, <laughs> except some mumbling about how they couldn't count. But <laughs> at any rate, it must have made a, a big impression on young Jimmy Baker. What a legendary figure his grandfather was in the city. When he eventually went to college, even though he was kind of considered the golden boy of the family, didn't cover himself in glory in his early studies. Yeah, he wasn't uh, the most diligent student in the world. He did get into the Hill School, private school in Pennsylvania, thanks to his dad. He then got into Princeton, really largely because of the family. Pretty, you know, okay, mediocre kind of student on most terms. It really wasn't until later that he began to sort of pick up the family discipline that would make him successful. And I'll have to say, reading quotes from his love letters in college, they weren't exactly the most poetic things I've ever seen. <laughs> oh, I thought it was cute. <laughs> he, he met the woman who would become the love of his early life on the beach and spring break in Bermuda when he was in college. And her name was Mary Stewart. She went to a, a finishing school, as it was called at the time in New York City. She was from Ohio. And he wrote her in particular one letter I'm thinking of in which he confessed I have the screaming A-bomb hots for you. <laughs> so at least he was a man of his moment. Uh, this was the early 1950s, the beginning of the, the nuclear age. Had it been a few years later, it would have been the screaming H-bomb hots, I guess. Yes, yeah, that's when it really got hot. So, Peter, did you remember any purple <laughs> prose you had when you were courting Susan? Yeah, oh, oh I, I tried to em emulate that, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I think it was a it was a real love affair. And I think that that's one of the stories people don't know about him because he's a pretty diffident guy. He's not ex exceptionally emotional in a public way. Even his own staff over the years would say they always called him Mr. Baker and never really, you know, got intimate with him. And then I think so for us to, as biographers to learn about his early life and this love affair and what became a tragedy in that family later on, I think was quite human, quite moving. How did Baker end up choosing the Marine Corps for his military service? Well, it was during the Korean War and uh, everybody at Princeton was trying to figure out what's the best way to go about doing this. Do you want to get drafted? Do you want to volunteer? If you volunteer, you could go to officer candidate school rather than go into the infantry. So he, he went to the Marines thinking that that would be the best way to kind of stay away from Korea, honestly. And he picked an, a particularly odd field in the artillery spotter and he was the only one in his unit who ended up not going to Korea. He ended up serving the Korean War, as he puts it, on the French Riviera on a boat in the Mediterranean, which wasn't good for him either because he kind of gets seasick, but it did keep him out of the war. He did learn a lot, I think, from the Marines. It did kind of help begin that process of learning discipline. And his experience in the humanitarian aid with the Greek earthquake seems to have affected yeah. him pretty deeply. Yeah, I think that's right. And he, they participated in exercises with Greek and Turkish NATO partners and had to you know, figure out how to speak languages other than their own and communicate with people other than Americans. Early preparation, I suppose, for being a secretary of state. Did he have much experience abroad before he went in the Corps? No, not at all. I mean, he was a very, very privileged son, but from a very relatively narrow world 
of you know this sort of Texas elite, and I think that was was an eye opening experience. As were some of his other early experiences, going from Texas to the Hill School in Pennsylvania for the last couple of years of high school was a very difficult transition for him. It was a prep school that his father had gone to and insisted that he go to as well. Going to Princeton, same thing. You know, Among his papers, there's interesting letter home to the family, realizing you know, that the worlds of New York high society were far removed even from the world of Texas high society that he was familiar with. And so I think having to operate as an outsider and then coming into the Marine Corps, not only with so many others from different backgrounds, from his own privileged background, but then, as you said, you know, seeing the devastation of this terrible earthquake and, you know, dead bodies and like that was just really outside of the pampered life. He grew up in the Depression in Houston, but he was so well off. He remembers his mother sending a hot lunch to school every day for him and his sister with the family chauffeur and insisting that he take it no matter how embarrassed he begged her to just pack him a sandwich like the other kids she wouldn't do it so you know it was a big deal for him to early in his life have to operate in environments with people from different backgrounds and he did have to work hard during the summer in between his years in college they sent him out into the field to do some real labor yeah, he worked on uh, these oil rigs. One of the situations where he was with a bunch of wildcatters and, and learning a very different hands-on manual labor kind of work for a couple summers during college. And I think that was formative for him too. You know, a chance to, to actually use his hands and meet people who were very different from him who didn't have the advantages that he had. And that oil background would give him a little bit in common with George H.W. Bush when they would meet later on. Oil is Texas. Texas is oil. And that's, you know, those two things go hand in hand. No question about it. His father was very insistent that he go to law school at UT Austin instead of one of the Ivies. What did Baker think about that decision and, and how did he handle his time at UT Austin? Well, you know, this was the man he nicknamed the warden. And it really is striking that his dad was, you know, so demanding and that Baker was willing to go along with it for so many years. A grown man, he was already married. He already had a young child. He had already been in the Marines. And yet his father said, you know, you're going to practice law in Texas. So you need to go to law school in Texas. Not only that, but his father said, you must pledge the same fraternity that I pledge. And so even though he was a grown man, he went along with undergraduates hazing him uh, and, you know, this sort of very demeaning ritual. He clearly still resented it even decades later when he <laughs> told us the story. And yet he had done as his father said. When he finally gets his JD and he's out in the world, he can't join the family firm of Baker Botts. Right. The Baker Botts firm was one of the oldest in the West at one point, one of the largest in the West, west of the Mississippi. His great-grandfather was a was an early founding partner of it. And yet they had a nepotism rule, which meant that if your dad worked there, you couldn't work there. And they thought it would make an exception for his dad because he did have his name on the door, but they wouldn't. And it was crushing for young Jim Baker, our future secretary of state. I think he thought that he was failing his dad in a way that, that had an impact on him. But in later life, he came to recognize that that actually was a favor for him because had he gone to work for his dad's law firm and succeeded, people would have said, well, it's just because it was this partner's son. If he had failed, it would have been even more embarrassing. So he went to another Houston blue chip law firm and he made a real career for himself there. But he still relied on the family money to keep his family moving along because they were adding children at a pretty good clip. Well, that's right. And it, I, I think that, to me, was one of the more illuminating things. In the course of doing this book, we were lucky enough to have access 
to uh, Secretary Baker's papers at Princeton University and at Rice. There's Baker Institute there at Rice. One of the things I found fascinating were this series of very short, almost like memos to a professional colleague from his father. And they were essentially receipts. His dad was keeping him on a tight leash well into his adulthood. You know, he's married, he's working at a law firm, and yet the family money, they weren't oil gazillionaires, but they were certainly well off. And Baker was clearly living beyond his means as a young associate at this law firm, his dad would send him, you know, $25 for a Brooks Brothers suit. He was even paying for his wife's Christmas gift or paying for the obstetrician who delivered one of their four sons. And, you know, there was a real sense of the dad being involved to the level of even micromanaging his life even well into adulthood. We've been joined by another member of your family. Can you just introduce the little tinkling sound in the back there? And that's that's Ellie, Ellie Glasser, uh, <laughs> our lovely half Labrador, half golden retriever, uh, who generally is in favor of book talks and television appearances, except if delivery people intervene. <laughs> <laughs> so what has it been like for y'all doing a press tour inside your own home office? <laughs> well, Ellie is definitely getting a lot more exposure than she normally would to the press. In fact, she actually had a cameo on the Showtime show, The Circus, which is a fantastic sort of, you know, political documentary style show about the, the campaign. They came to our backyard the other night, but Ellie, frankly, got a bigger close-up shot than Peter did. <laughs> so how did a tennis match change Baker's life? This is one of these stories that I think make you realize how much history can change through very random circumstances, right? So Jim Baker is a champion tennis player. He wins the single tournaments at the Houston Country Club and into town comes this young oilman named George H.W. Bush. And the two of them get put together as a doubles team. Bush is just as competitive as Baker. And the two of them end up going on to winning two doubles tournaments at the Country Club back-to-back years. In fact, all the way until... George H.W. Bush's death and even now into Baker's uh, you know, ninth decade, they would still remember and brag about those two championships they won together. And it was a friendship that really, you know, obviously formed a, a bond that would take them into politics, into the highest echelons of power. Baker wasn't political. George Bush was. But over the years, Bush eventually sort of lures him into politics, particularly after his first wife dies, a tragic death of cancer. And I think that the Bush friendship really not only changed Baker's life, but changed the arc of history. And the relationship with George H.W. Bush and this family would shape the rest of his professional life. But there were ups and downs all through those 40 some odd years. Oh, absolutely. You know, interestingly enough, Baker, you know, characterized it almost as a sibling relationship, especially initially he saw Bush definitely as an older brother. The word he used was a bit dazzled by him. You know, remember Bush had come from being really a hero in World War II, the youngest naval aviator. Baker had not served. He wasn't old enough to be in that war, as we pointed out. You know, he also comes to Texas and breaks away to a certain extent to make his own Fortune, where while Baker was still kind of constrained and, and part of the family legal tradition, Bush was the son of a senator, Prescott Bush, and yet here he was in Texas, you know, in the oil business. He then wins election to the House of Representatives and becomes this public figure while Baker is still kind of doing just what's expected 
of him. So he was a, an older brother to the start. But then when they both entered politics, there were definitely moments in time where their power balance shifted. And that led also to, I think, more frictions. I mean, anytime you're in the family business, as it were, frictions can occur. For example, I think after Baker became Ronald Reagan's chief of staff in the White House, and you know Bush is the vice president, he's a constitutional officer, and yet in a day-to-day sense, Baker was much more powerful in Reagan's Washington. And that was one key hinge point maybe in their relationship. And then, of course, flash forward into the 1988 campaign and then presidency of George Herbert Walker Bush. And Bush, arguably, when he picked Dan Quayle, it was a little bit moment, an assertion of independence, if you will, from Baker, whose reputation by that point was already pretty formidable. He didn't even tell Baker in advance that he was going to pick Quayle. The rollout of it was sort of a disaster, Baker might say predictably so. And then there were real hard feelings after Bush lost re-election in 1992. Baker came in at the last minute to run the campaign again. The Bushes felt like maybe he had only done so half-heartedly, that it was too late. And so that was probably their, their biggest crisis, I would say, in the relationship. But in the end, who was there literally at George Bush's bedside when he died, rubbing his feet, but Jim Baker. And I think that does tell you a lot about where they began and ended this remarkable friendship. And unfortunately, Baker didn't experience tranquility in his personal life either, with his wife, as you mentioned, passing away in 1970. And it would be decades before things seemed to gain a sense of equilibrium in the very large family he then had. Right. He ends up marrying his first wife's friend, Susan Garrett, who's also married to one of his old friends. They had gotten divorced. His friend had trouble with alcohol. So Jim Baker and Susan Winston put together a family in which they bring his four boys and her three kids together for a family of seven. And ironically, this happens at the very time that TV's Brady Bunch is on the air. But while the Brady Bunch on TV is a happy family and everybody's cheery and happy and everything's good, in reality, you know, the Baker merger of these two families was challenging and difficult. They weren't always happy about it. Jim and Susan probably didn't handle it well by getting married and not telling them first. They just sort of <laughs> popped it on them and said, hey guys, guess what we did? And some of the kids were, you know, resentful. They, you know, who is this replacing our mom? Or, you know, why we have to move into this house with so few rooms and share a handful of toilets or whatever. One of the boys even vowed to break up the marriage at one point. And then the challenges of the era, you know, there were drugs in that era and there were rebellion in that era. And so they it took a few years till they kind of knit the family together in a really, in a, in a more powerful way. As you said, they were problems of the era with drugs, but later on in his employment in Republican administrations, the war on drugs would affect America so greatly where it seems like he could have offered a little bit more perspective and, and kindness to the people that are afflicted by addiction. Well, absolutely. He did not make it one of his public issues. There's no question about it. And, you know, Baker, by that point, had very strong relationships in the the National Press Corps. And it was a different era in terms of coverage. So, you know, you could have imagined his son was checked into rehab at a point when Nancy Reagan was launching her Just Say No campaign. In this era, I'm sure it would have been a much bigger story than it was in that era. It was actually covered, but not in a big sensationalistic way when he was the White House chief of staff. Now, what was the first election that he and George H.W. Bush worked on together? Bush ran for the House of Representatives and the Senate before getting Baker to really participate. First time that Baker really participates is in 1970 after Mary Stewart dies. In fact, 
Bush uses this moment to say, look, the way to get out of your grief is to come work with me on this Senate campaign from Texas. And Baker says, well, I got two problems here. One, I don't know anything about politics. And two, I'm a Democrat. And Bush says, well, we can take care of that latter one. And they do. Baker becomes a Republican. And actually, they take care of the first problem, too. He ends up learning an awful lot about politics by working on that Senate campaign. And it's sort of off to the races from there. I think he gets the the taste of it, right? And he starts fundraising for Republicans. You know, Bush helps him get a job in Ford's administration in Washington, in a kind of obscure role, perhaps, at the Commerce Department. And then, boom, suddenly from there, within a year of arriving in Washington, Baker is running the campaign for the incumbent president of the United States, Gerald Ford. He didn't even get involved in politics until he was 45. It's kind of strange. You know, you see all these people that are the college Democrats and college Republicans have built their entire lives working on campaigns, getting up to that moment. But he just kind of was there at the right place at the right time. Well, and he also obviously had a skill set. But yeah, he's, you know, arguably the world's most successful mid-career change, right? You know, he, he had had nothing to do with this politics. And then all of a sudden, you know, he's he's at the commanding heights of it. It really is a remarkable transition. And that was part of what interested us in terms of doing the book, right, is this opportunity to tell the story of, Washington from the end of Watergate to the end of the Cold War through this person who really managed to be essentially in the middle of almost every big chapter of that epic in American politics. So in 1976, during the Republican National Convention, he was put in charge of wrangling delegates for Gerald Ford, and he learned a very important lesson of not lying to reporters. Yes, I wish there were more people in Washington who would learn that lesson (laughs) as a reporter. Look, he understood that credibility is power. Credibility is a value thing. In other words, a lot of politicians or operatives think that they can kind of weasel their way around reporters and that they advance themselves by not telling the full truth. I think Baker understood that, that by being open with reporters about what the delicate count really was, as opposed to inflating the numbers, which is what Reagan's guy was doing at the time when they were fighting for this Republican nomination, that he gained credibility with those reporters and that those reporters then would trust him more in the future, knowing that he wasn't going to outright lie to them. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't spin. He did. Of course, he's very good at it. It doesn't mean he told the full truth all the time. He didn't. But he gave enough of the truth, and, he, and what he did say was always, you know, factually accurate and confirmable, that when he got in trouble in various points in his career, that worked to his benefit, because he had a track record with reporters that really mattered. It seems really quaint that you have political figures who you know, valued at least telling the truth, at least if it were an advantage on their side, and that wacky concept of bipartisanship existed back then as well. Look, I mean, clearly part of the exercise of doing this book was actually to, you know, re-immerse ourselves in a very different era of American politics. And the incentives in many ways, the structural incentives to do this kind of deal making across the aisle have really disappeared in recent times. And these changes in our politics make it less and less likely that a figure such as Baker could emerge when permanent campaigning to your base is seen as as a more advantageous way than working with others who might be suspect across the aisle, right? The very notion of compromise has been cast into doubt. And that was really the coin of the realm in Reagan's era. You know, Reagan is seen with hindsight as this father of the modern GOP and a partisan figure. But interestingly, even though he was a partisan figure at the time, and there were certainly political divisions and lots of rancor, especially in election years, 
he still had an incentive to be seen as getting things done. That was almost a requirement of the job, right? And Baker was his executor. Remember that the House of Representatives was in Democratic hands for the entirety of both Reagan terms and George Herbert Walker Bush's term, right? So you couldn't do anything in Washington unless you were willing to work with Democrats. And Baker was the one who probably figured out most successfully how to do that. If we were just going to assign some arbitrary percentages, what would you say the split between ideology and pragmatism were that drove Baker? Well, that's a good question. I, you know, look, everything he did was rooted in a basic conservatism, small c. He just wasn't a revolutionary about it. So when he was Reagan's chief of staff, he knew that Reagan had promised in the campaign to get rid of the Department of Education, for instance. Well, Baker wasn't going to waste any time with that. He knew that would never fly. And so he basically put it to the side and focused on what he thought he could get done, which was Reagan's economic program and tax cuts. So I think that if you ask for a percentage, the percentage that Reagan used to give all the time was, I'd really get 80% of what I want than fly my flag going over the cliff, you know, trying to get something you're not going to get. And I think that's the percentage that Baker would look at too. If you can get 60, 70, 80% of what you want, then don't stand on ceremony and don't stand on ideology and make the perfect, the enemy of the good. I remember when I was in junior high school, and this was the first term of the Reagan administration, I think we were probably in American history class, and the teacher was asking everyone if they would like to be president of the United States one day. And my response was, no, I'd rather be chief of staff. That's where the real power is. (laughs) Well, you had it right. So you were a Baker fan uh, from the very beginning? Not not a fan, (laughs) but I recognized how powerful he was. Right. I should make that point. This is a study of power, not a celebration of it. And, you know, that really, I think, was what was was compelling and interesting to us as fellow children of the Reagan era. You know, we didn't cover these events initially, but understood that Baker really was synonymous for both Democrats and Republicans at being probably the most skilled of his era in the kind of acquisition, maintenance and wielding of power. When you were young and seeing this first Reagan administration, did you have any thoughts about what was going on? Were y'all political junkies back in the day as well? Well, I was not even in high school yet when Reagan came into office and was not a huge fan, let us say. But <laughs> Well, you know, I love politics. I grew up in Washington. My dad was always interested in politics. We would sit and watch political conventions every four years together. We would sit together on election night. We, as a kid, keeping track of primary nights and votes, who got how many votes and making, you know, adding up delegates and things like that. So it was always kind of a a, a junkie's interest back then. Another one of those quaint concepts they had back then, Alexander Haig threatened to quit many times early on in the first Reagan administration, and they didn't want to see that turnover so early in the administration as compared to nowadays when it seems like every other week someone's leaving the administration. That's right. I mean, you know, there were some interesting parallels. Now, again, the personality of Ronald Reagan is so dramatically different from Donald Trump. It's hard to make comparisons. But remember that Reagan was an outsider who had been opposed by the party establishment. I mean, what's remarkable, in fact, is that Baker was seen as the paragon of the party establishment at that time. Baker was the one who had run not one, but two national campaigns against Reagan in 1976 at the Republican convention. And then George Bush's 1980 primary campaign against Reagan, in which Bush said some pretty tough things about Reagan, including saying that his program was one of voodoo economics. And yet Baker managed to help maneuver Bush to be able to get the vice presidential nomination once Reagan did secure the Republican nod. And so it's actually a very interesting story of how, you know, two different outsiders who came and essentially took over the Republican Party, they had very different approaches in the end, right? Reagan's approach versus Trump's approach. 
he did not enjoy any support from the social conservatives and the far right wing of the Republican Party. They were not Baker fans. No, they weren't. The irony is I think Baker's actually fairly conservative on some of these issues. You know, certainly for gun rights, he's anti-abortion, he's, he's a religious person. But he, he didn't see those as useful issues for the public square. He ran for office just one time in 1978 for Texas Attorney General. We found all these papers in his files where his aides were trying to, to shape his campaign message. And he kept really pushing away the wedge issues. He didn't want to run on the social issues. It wasn't his passion. Instead, he wanted to run on economic issues. That mattered to him. He later, of course, became very absorbed in national security issues. It was just never his thing to be involved with the social issues. And that made him suspect to a lot of the people on the political right. In his attempt to run for AG back in the day and then thinking about running for president later on, he just was not a man who would deal with the public well. But one-on-one in smaller groups, he was very adept at that. And as much as the current administration talks about making deals, James Baker was the man who could get deals done. Well, that's right. I mean, I it actually, in many ways, I think working on this book, Peter and I came to see that that deal making was the essence of who Baker is, and probably his superpower, if you will, you know, in public life. Very skilled at what one observer of Baker said was the the ricochets, seeing how the balls would careen off of each other in ways that might seem unintended to others. And he worked it very, very hard, but very strategically. He did not take on just any cause. He was pretty ruthless and strategic in deciding where there was a possibility of a deal, even if it was a very hard possibility or a low probability. But he wouldn't take on something he saw as hopeless. And, you know, he had a record that that was pretty unequaled, first in U.S. domestic politics and then internationally. In U.S. domestic politics, he reformed Social Security. He took on the tax code in 1986, still a feat that has not been replicated and had to do that, of course, with Democrats like Dan Rastikowski on Capitol Hill. Then he put together when he was Treasury Secretary, something called the Plaza Accord, which was the very first time that world central bankers had ever coordinated their monetary policy. And this is a guy who had no background whatsoever in finance and one undergraduate course in Princeton only to his name. You know, then when he became Secretary of State, of course, it coincided with this very momentous period of essentially the end of the Cold War, the unraveling of the Soviet empire. And he pulled together the negotiating framework that ended up resulting in the unification of Germany. He put together the coalition in the first Gulf War, you know, and on and on the list goes. I will say, though, in his experience at the Treasury Department, I wanted to get an eye transplant after reading the lyrics to the tax reform shuffle. (laughs) Well, it was a funny moment, right? Toward the end, he, he had spent so much time with the Hill people that they did put on this sort of skit and they replicated what was then called the Super Bowl shuffle from the Chicago Bears 1985 Super Bowl championship team. And they adapted it to Jim Baker. And I won't try to perform it. Believe me, nobody wants that. But it was a, it was a funny moment where, you know, Baker in this sort of Geisendahl suit shows up and performs and, 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 and shows a side of him that we don't see very often in public. I will say the job swap between Baker and Donald Reagan is one of the stranger happenings I remember in American political history. Well, that's right. I mean, first of all, it's a classic that Jim Baker, who was reputed to be, and in fact was, one of the biggest leaguers, if not the biggest leaguer in the Reagan White House. The whole job swap started with Don Reagan, then the Treasury Secretary, calling him up and being furious over a leak. And in fact, he was saying that he was going to quit. So essentially, Baker came over to have lunch with him and mollify the angry Treasury Secretary. The two get to commiserating over their jobs. It's four years into Reagan's presidency. He's just been reelected. Baker's exhausted. While he is widely considered 
to be the gold standard by both parties, I should say, as chief of staff in the White House. He found the job to be grueling, exhausting, thankless, and he he was desperate to get out and had been actually for a couple of years at that point. So Reagan essentially says, yeah, he'd like to get out too. And they said, well, why not switch jobs? And I think Baker grabbed onto it like a lifeline. He was also very eager to transcend this label of political handler and fixer and staff guy that up until that point had defined his very successful career. He didn't want to be the guy in the background whispering in Reagan's ear anymore. He wanted to be a principal in Washington terms. He wanted to have his own seat at the table. And it says something, of course, about Ronald Reagan as president and his apparent passivity that the two of them presented this fait accompli and Reagan went along with it. Now, Susan, with your extensive foreign policy coverage uh, and reporting and study and editing, how would you rank Baker as Secretary of State in the 20th century? Well, you know, I think he is widely considered to be the most successful Secretary of State in this post-Cold War period, with the possible exception of Henry Kissinger. You know, you could make the argument either way, but Baker also had the blessing of living at such a consequential moment. Kissinger, essentially, the opening to China will forever be a huge part of his record, along with his Middle East diplomacy. But in the end, the basic framework of the Cold War didn't shift. And for Baker and Bush, they happened to be in office when the tectonic plates of history were moving. But he was the right man for the moment, too. And I I will say that going back over these incredible events, especially in 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall, nobody expects that you realize once again that history seems a lot more inevitable in hindsight than it does at the moment. And I think you can in particular pinpoint Baker's extraordinary diplomacy in the course of that German reunification talks and realize it definitely could have worked out differently. And the relationship overall that he built with Edward Shevardnadze, the Soviet foreign minister, as well as Mikhail Gorbachev, it was absolutely indispensable in bringing the Cold War to a largely peaceful end. And he seemed to have a bad feeling about Benjamin Netanyahu very early on. (laughs) (laughs) He did. Netanyahu was a younger deputy foreign minister for Israel at the time. And he said something in public, it was quoted, that really riled Baker. He said something about American policy in the region being based on lies and falsehoods. And that really got under Baker's skin. He just didn't like that kind of thing, especially from an ally and somebody from his point of view that America had done an awful lot for So he basically just cast Netanyahu out. He says he will not set foot in the State Department as long as I'm Secretary of State. He made him a, what they say, PNG, you know, persona non grata. And only afterwards, when his aides eventually prevailed on him, did he kind of soften a little bit by saying, okay, fine, he can come into the building, but I won't speak to him. He can only speak with lower level people. And I think that that skepticism, let's say, at the best about Netanyahu survives to this day. He thinks that Netanyahu is too much of a hardliner, that he has sabotaged the chances for peace with all the settlement building. And it tells you a lot about today's Republican Party, about how much that's changed, because that kind of view is just not found today in a Republican Party that views support for Israel to be a monolithic, inalterable tenet of their policy. On a less serious note, he seemed to like tuna fish for lunch. (laughs) He did. I don't understand that either. (laughs) It was mentioned three times in the book. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's a very disciplined guy. I mean, you know, he was all business. And, you know, even I thought it was really interesting. You know, the Reagan White House was kind of famous for these kind of big, glitzy Hollywood meets Washington events and state dinners. Baker didn't like that. He saw that as an interruption to his workday. He would put on his tuxedo and go down for the state dinner, but then go back 
up to work. You know, even his longtime advisors, you know, told us they'd never been invited to dinner at his house. They, you know, he'd never met their wife. I mean, he was really, you know, all business in a town where, where socializing is big business. He would get into it to a certain extent, but it wasn't his thing. Y'all have had a personal and a professional life for many, many years, over 20 years of marriage. Now you just celebrated an anniversary recently. Susan was Peter's editor for a little while, and they were bureau chiefs together over in Moscow, wrote a book, Kremlin Rising, together. And now you have the book about Baker. Has the workflow changed over those 20 some odd years? Well, you know, we're lucky because our partnership is both professional and personal. I think that's a great gift. We didn't meet in the newsroom. She was my boss. We established technically not. We established the pecking order early. That makes things easier. We've now written two books together. Actually, the last one was a little bit harder than this one because we were doing it while she was pregnant. And Susan will tell you, I mean, it's not an easy thing. We also moved home from Moscow at the exact same time. So we're moving across the world. Susan is pregnant and we're writing a book. And we literally finished the book on the same day the baby is born. So we got a baby and a book on the same day. So by comparison, this one was pretty easy. (laughs) So, Peter, with you working as White House correspondent for The Times, what has work been like for you since all these positive COVID-19 tests have been coming up inside the White House? Well, it's a worrisome uh, situation, obviously. My One of my partners, Mike Shear, and one of our photographers were two of the people who were infected, uh, as well as Mike's wife. So as a result of what's happened, we reevaluated our situation. The writers, anyway, are not currently traveling with the president on these campaign rallies. Uh, It doesn't feel safe to us at this point. We're covering it from a distance, and that's obviously not the best way to cover a White House, but that's the best we think we can do at the moment. And we will be as careful and professional as we can while we try to provide coverage these next 20 days. And it's been a very tough time at the Times recently with the passing of Jim Dwyer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Such a legendary figure and uh, a real New York journalist, you know, a real part of the city in a way that uh, we don't see as much anymore because it's everything is so transcending boundaries and and national these days. And Dwyer really had a voice that, that we already miss. So it was 15 years between the book about Putin came out in 2005 to the Baker book now, but y'all are already back to work on another book together, right? <laughs> this one, uh, hopefully, not good, will be a bit quicker turnaround. But we are going to do a Trump book after the election once we know how at least this chapter of the story ends. And so I think we're looking forward to trying to make some sense of the last few years. And, you know, if nothing else, write it down in a way that I do imagine our kids and grandkids are going to look back on this and say, you know, did this really happen? <laughs> what was it like when Donald Trump was president? So I hope we can answer that a little bit. So how do y'all negotiate the establishment of the authorial voice in a project together? It's very interesting. I mean, again, I think Peter is right. Because we've worked together since the very beginning of our relationship and, you know, we're used to editing things back and forth and one person will write, the other person will rewrite and we'll swap things back and forth. You know, my friend Julia, a fellow former Moscow correspondent, once told me that she was pretty sure that she could tell who wrote which chapters in Kremlin Rising. But this was a different kind of a book, a biography of somebody with one character who's present throughout it. And it calls for a much more unified approach and unified narrative. I would think it's basically anything that sounds good in the book, Susan wrote, and it kind of gets a little boring. That's where I wrote. <laughs> I'm duty bound to disagree with that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> 
Well, Susan and Peter, I want to thank you so much for taking a few minutes and speaking with us today on Book Talk. It's a remarkable, in-depth book. If you have interest in American politics near the end of the 20th century, it is a must-read. Thank you. Thank you so much. What a great conversation. Really appreciate it. All right. Take care and be safe, y'all. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Peter Baker and Susan Glasser are the authors of The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker III, which is published by Doubleday. I'm Stephen Ussery. And this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wiplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.